Welcome to Counterspin, your weekly look behind the headlines. I'm Janine Jackson. This week on Counterspin, powerless in the United States, how utilities drive shutoffs and energy injustice. That's an ongoing project from the Center for Biological Diversity, the Energy and Policy Institute, and Bailout Watch. It tracks utility service disconnections and corporate profiteering, because as it turns out, those are flip sides of a coin. You and I might think that in disastrous weather conditions, with no signs of stopping, and a pandemic, and low wages, and a hike in prices, it would be a time to acknowledge workers' sacrifices and support them. Silly us. Actually, it's a moment for powerful companies to raise prices on consumers, not to recoup any losses, but just to raise profits, as their shareholder speeches will proudly reveal. And why would that gouging stop at life-saving vaccines or medicines? Why not also shut off the power to the homes of struggling families? Seriously, why not? If Wall Street will reward you for it, and corporate news media won't call you out, or even seriously, humanistically report on what you're doing. Or, even easier, one might think, argue for the basic transparency that would allow that reporting. Electric utilities have disconnected U.S. households more than 4 million times since the beginning of COVID, preceding the Russian war on Ukraine. At the same time, shareholder payouts went up by $1.9 billion, increases that could have paid those households' bills five times over. Our guest's work illustrates how energy bills take up more and more of families' earnings and how the actions of corporations take a tough and sometimes life-threatening situation, make it worse, and then hand it off to their allies in the press corps, who they know will present it as business as usual, if regrettable, but above all, nothing worth looking into or talking about seriously. They aren't just complaining. They have ideas about what's needed to address the situation. Shelby Green is research fellow at the Energy and Policy Institute. Sayla Goodson-Bell is energy justice campaigner at the Center for Biological Diversity. We'll hear from both of them this week on the show. But first, a look back at some recent press. It's hard to find words after yet another brutal police killing of a black person, this time of 29-year-old Tyree Nichols in Memphis, captured in horrifying detail on video footage released last week. But the words we use, and in that we, the journalists who frame these stories, figure critically, those words, if we actually want to not just be sad about but to end state-sanctioned racist murders, those words mustn't downplay or soften the hard reality with euphemism and vagary. But that's exactly what the New York Times did in recent coverage. In its January 28th front-page story, reporter Rick Rojas led with an unflinching description of the brutal footage, noting that Tyree Nichols showed no signs of fighting back under his violent arrest for supposed erratic driving. Yet just a few paragraphs later, Rojas wrote, quote, The video reverberated beyond the city, 
as the case has tapped into an enduring frustration over black men having fatal encounters with police officers, close quote. Well, people get frustrated when their bus is late. People get frustrated when their cell phones autocorrect misbehaves. If people were merely frustrated when police officers violently beat yet another black person to death, well, then city governments wouldn't be worried in the way the Times article describes about widespread protests and destructive unrest. By describing protest as destructive while describing law enforcement's repeated murder of black people as black men having fatal encounters with police officers, the New York Times is working to soften a blow that should not be softened, to try to deflect some of the blame and outrage that rightfully should be aimed full blast at our country's racist policing system. That linguistic soft-pedaling and backstepping language is peppered throughout this piece, describing how police brigades like the Scorpion Unit these Memphis police were part of are, quote, designed to patrol areas of the city struggling with persistent crime and violence, close quote. So just trying to protect black folks from ourselves, you see. Yet they mysteriously, quote, end up oppressing young people and people of color, close quote. Well, that's a subject for documented reporting and not conjecture. When a local activist described himself as not shocked as much as I am disgusted by what happened to Tyree Nichols, the Times adds, quote, still he acknowledged the gravity of the case, close quote, as if anti-racist activists combined anger, sorrow, and exhaustion might be a sign that they can't really follow what's happening or respond appropriately. Folks on Twitter and elsewhere called out the Times for this embarrassing black people encounter police and somehow end up dead business. But the paper is apparently happy with it, so much so that they came back a few days later with an update carrying the headline, quote, what we know about Tyree Nichols' lethal encounter with Memphis police, close quote. In that piece, Rojas and co-author Neelam Bora wrote in the lead, quote, The stop escalated into a violent confrontation that ended with Mr. Nichols hospitalized in critical condition. Three days later, he died, close quote. Journalism school tells you that fewer, more direct words are better. So when a paper tells you that a traffic stop escalated into a violent confrontation that ended up with a dead black person, understand that that paper is trying to gently lead you away from a painful reality, not try to help you understand it, and far less help you act to change it. You're listening to Counterspin, brought to you each week by the Media Watch Group FAIR. Some 4 million U.S. households have had their electricity cut off in recent years. But before you say Russia or COVID, our guests would have you understand that it has something to do with the utility business model 
that we use in this country for energy and electricity, and that that model is broken and worthy of reconsideration. Shelby Green is research fellow at the Energy and Policy Institute. Sela Goodson-Bell is energy justice campaigner at the Center for Biological Diversity, and they're both behind a new report called Powerless that is out from Biological Diversity and Bailout Watch. They both join us by phone. I'm happy to have you here, Shelby Green and Sela Goodson-Bell. Happy to join you. Well, let's just get into the the content of the report. What do you mean by powerless? What is the problem that you're describing? And, you know, I think a lot of folks might think, oh, my lights blink out for a minute. Losing power is much, much more than that. And it's life or death in some cases. Yes. Yeah, that's well said. Zoom out a little bit. I just wanted to share that this this report is the third in a series that's been tracking this issue, specifically the extent to which profit-driven utilities have been cutting off families' basic human right to electricity and heat millions of times a year, while at the same time shelling out billions to their shareholders and executives. We started tracking this in the pandemic, but it's a pretty egregious injustice and has continued since. Um, It's still happening today. Most recently, we've seen that about 5.7 million houses were cut off of electricity about 5.7 million times since 2020. And that's a low-end number as about 20 states don't even provide information on uh, household disconnections. And that's about 40% of states that we found. And so all of the numbers and figures we're going to share today are just a small scope of the issue. Um, they don't represent the full scope. And that's also going to be something we talk about a little bit more, data transparency. And at the heart of our report, it's basically a desire to expose the utility industry's greedy profiteering that's ultimately driving the shutoffs crisis and energy insecurity. Well, I wanted to just actually, you very forward in the report, connect electric and gas service shutoffs and profiteering. And I think there's a reason that you connect those two things. Yeah, I think most consumers really don't realize what is happening when it comes to their utility bill or the energy system that we have designed in America, most utilities, they're able to get a rate of return from their customers, and they're not really concerned about providing power or ensuring that everyone has access to power. They're more concerned about making sure they're making enough money to give to their shareholders. And so... What we really wanted to highlight within this report is that not only are disconnections happening across the country, especially during a time where people are experiencing such high economic uncertainty, but they are also happening because of rising prices of gas. And utilities are heavily reliant on gas and are building infrastructure and gas fire power plants that will cause utility bills to increase further and also cause customers to have to pay for these rate increases. And so we really wanted to make the connection between consumers, the price of their utility bill, and also this model that is in need of reform in America. Absolutely. And, you know, I think that's not a connection that mainstream news media are making. In other words, we're hearing prices are rising and that's hurting you. But we're not necessarily connecting that to profit-making by 
utility corporations. And so I appreciate the connection that you're making there. But I just wonder if you could spell out, like, we're not talking about, uh, you know, a few more pennies at the pump. We're talking about, you know, in many cases, this is about whether people can do what they need to do to survive. I think framing it that way is really important. People seem to take for granted how important electricity is for physical safety, for food security, you know, keeping your food refrigerated, for medical care if you have medicine that needs to be refrigerated, and also for telecommunications. And with the nexus with um, disconnects and arrearages, when people are forced to bear those costs and have their uh, service severed, it makes it also harder for them to maintain employment. It makes it harder for them to keep their kids in school. It can make it more difficult to get a loan or a mortgage. And so we really wanted to highlight how this energy insecurity issue just has tendrils into other ways that social instability can manifest and how the utility industry is really complicit in that. And of course, the impacts of this are most disproportionately felt in households of color. We found that last year, one in five American households struggled to pay for an energy bill, but that rate was 50% higher for households of color. And a big reason has to do with some of the lingering impacts of redlining. And basically, a lot of households of color might live in structurally deficient housing that ends up costing more to keep warm or cool, which is especially costly and dangerous in the wake of climate disasters like heat waves, freezes, etc. They're already hit the hardest and are less likely to get the resources they need as early as they need. But then when it comes to the increases in energy demand that come with coping from those extreme weather disasters, we're seeing households of color also in the short end of the stick. So that's something that we also wanted to highlight and really show the utility industry's role in that factor. And again, like Shelby said, since they're continuing to invest in fossil gas infrastructure and are completely disconnected from the implications of that, that itself is also exacerbating the climate emergency. And just to bring it back to profits for a minute, disconnections across the country, as we outlined in the report, occurred over 1.5 million times in just the first 10 months of 2022. If just 12 utilities took 1% of their dividends that they paid out to shareholders, that could have covered the cost. That could have prevented disconnections. But now they're also passing on the cost of rising fuel to their customers through rate increases for fuel rider investments. So utility executives, they are not doing their part in making sure that they're keeping the cost low for consumers. They're not doing their part in making sure that consumers that fall behind can get access to relief dollars. And they're also not doing their part in communicating properly why consumers' utility bills are going up. So there's a really big problem here with utilities. They're not really providing the public with an affordable or reliable service. And regulators, public service commissions, are not doing a good enough job requiring utilities to do that. So there really is this broken system where the consumer gets hurt every single time. And so we really wanted to highlight in this report that you're not alone when you say that you can't afford your utility bill or when you say that you have to use your credit card to pay for an essential service. There are millions of people across the country who are having that same plight. And we need to start looking at utilities and their regulators and how they are able to uphold this system that hurts the everyday Americans. We hear that the role of journalism is to break stuff down for us. You know, we can't be in those boardrooms. We can't be in those corporate decision-making rooms. And so we rely on journalists to kind of 
break it down and explain to us as a consumer, you know, or as a worker, what that means to us. And so what's so great about this report is it, it does break it down and say, because you and I know, folks will read the media, they'll understand that prices are higher for them, they'll understand that energy prices are higher for them. But they're gonna be told that it has to do with, you know, Russia or COVID or mysterious winds from the West, you know, when actually there are systems that we can talk about and that we have levers to control. Yeah, and there's a lack of accountability and transparency. And Taylor can talk about this more, but while we're collecting this data, I mean, I live in Florida, and Florida utilities were only required to report disconnections during a very brief period during the pandemic, and they stopped reporting this data in October 2021. But we also know that Florida Power and Light, one of the biggest utilities in the state, they performed almost a million shutoffs during that reporting period, and now we have no idea how many people are shutting off again. Right. And so... What's frustrating is that there are people who think that they're just alone in this process of not being able to afford their utility bills. And there's also a factor of like shame associated with that, like not being able to afford your most basic bill, not being able to keep the power on in your house, not being able to cook food because you have no electricity. There's a lot of shame associated with not being able to do the bare minimum. And people think that, you know, it's their fault, but they're not the only ones to bear this blame. There are utilities and regulators and state legislators who also should be bearing this responsibility and thinking about what can we put in place to make sure consumers are being protected. So in states like Virginia, there's a bill that's going through the General Assembly that is trying to pause disconnections during a state of emergency. Also in North Carolina, there is a moratorium in place during winter. So when the weather reaches a certain point, you won't be disconnected because of the temperature. Those are protections that should be given to every American across this country. It should not be utility-specific or state-specific. It should be a protection that everyone can receive because everyone does deserve that right to know. Even when you are struggling, you do have protection still. Well, Sayla, can you add to that? And also, I love that you would name the names. You know, you have a hall of shame. There are folks who are uh, doing better and worse on this in terms of just acknowledging, you know, what Shelby has just talked about. It's a reality for many people, and they shouldn't be punished uh, by having their freaking lights turned off. So immediate action, thoughts? Yeah, definitely can add to that. And also in the spirit of naming, I can list like a couple of who those Hall of Shame utility companies were. Some of the top three this year were Exelon, Southern Co., NDT, Energy. And Next Air and Duke last year were two of our worst. But as Shelby mentioned, in Florida, since they no longer require utilities to report on household disconnections, we didn't have any access to that data. And if Next Air were to continue the disconnection rate it had last year, they would have definitely topped our list this year. But even without that, they still made the top 12. When we look back from 2020 through October of last year, these dozen companies were responsible for 86% of the power shots we saw. 
So it's a small number of companies that are just causing a massive amount of harm. And again, like Shelby said, it would have only taken 1% of the amount they spent on shareholder dividends to prevent those disconnections. And so it's truly inexcusable and is a result of their corporate greed. In terms of immediate actions, another state we want to lift up as an example of their regulators and their legislators actually putting money behind this issue is New York. They actually recently forgave the utility debt of almost 480,000 customers through May of last year, recognizing the different crises that were present in terms of the climate crisis, in terms of COVID. And this is like a one-time payment. And they also did the same for low-income customers last summer. But what we're asking for is a broader forgiveness of utility debt that Congress can hopefully institute by taxing utility profits. As we just saw, it wouldn't even take that much to stop utility shutoffs. But when it comes to rearages, it's a much bigger issue. And that continues to mount. Again, like Shelby was outlining, it doesn't take a disconnection for um, someone to suffer from the punitive financial measures that these utilities are imposing. And so some other solutions we're proposing, again, is, is some disconnection data transparency. In that light, we're hoping that the Energy Information Administration or state utility commissions are able to mandate these utilities to start tracking and disclosing power and gas shutoff data on a monthly basis, and also include zip code and demographic data so we know who's being impacted and where. And we're also hoping to just have institute a shutoff ban. As Shelby said, it shouldn't be limited to specific times of the year, specific temperatures or specific states or utilities. Everyone has a right to access electricity and heat. Again, I already mentioned um, utility debt forgiveness, but I'm also hoping that Congress boosts funding for LIHEAP and WAP, the, weather the Weatherization Assistance Program. And finally, we're really trying to start a narrative around the need to really get off this obsession with fossil fuels. We see how volatile fossil fuel prices are, but we also see how, again, they are what drive the climate emergency. And we're hoping that the Biden administration uses its executive powers to halt new fossil fuel production and infrastructure. There are a couple others we could go through, but I know I've been talking for a minute, so I don't know, Shelby, if you wanted to add anything in that light. I thought that was a great list, Ayla. Yeah. Let me just ask you both. Let me ask you both in terms of journalists, you know, because it seems like you're in another world in some ways than the way that corporate media discuss things. This kind of conversation is largely off the page. And so I would like to ask you both, obviously, folks who are media consumers are also the same folks who might have their lights shut off, you know, but then they pick up the paper and the paper tells them what the problem is and what the solution is. And I would like to ask you both, what would you have journalists do? Who would you have them talk to? What questions would you have them ask that could turn this conversation around to the point where we're not at like, well, I guess uh, Russia or I guess COVID. I guess there's things that are landing from space that are the reason that my electricity bills are so high or that the reason that I'm shut off. And how do we reorient folks to the conversation that might change things? Mm -hmm. I think where journalists can start is just going up to people in parking lots or people at the park asking them, have you looked at your utility bill lately? Have you noticed any changes in your utility bill? When I first started learning about shutoff and utility bills, that's what I did. <laughs> I had a petition. I went to the park. I was asking people if they've noticed a difference in their utility bill, if they've accrued any debt during the pandemic. 
and I was asking them to sign a petition to make sure my city extended a moratorium if people didn't lose power. So where journalists can start is just start talking to everyday people and get them to look at things that they've stopped looking at, potentially. Not a lot of people look at the fees or charges that are hidden within their utility bill. And so one example is, like I mentioned earlier, fuel riders. When the cost of methane gas is increasing, you will see that reflected in the fuel rider adjustment charge. And so, yeah, I would just encourage journalists to get everyday residents to start thinking about energy, looking at their utility bill, even scheduling tours with their local utility and understanding where does the fuel come from and what are the factors that are set in place that impact my utility bill. But there's not enough everyday people are thinking about energy, and I don't blame them. It's a very difficult topic. Most people just yeah. turn on the switch, yeah, and that's, that's the most thinking they do about it. And then when you try to start looking at things, it's a little bit complicated because you don't have access to utility executives and you don't understand what decisions they're making that influence your bill at the end of the day. So journalists really are the middlemen between the everyday people and the people in power and the people that sit on the boardrooms for utilities. Those are the spaces where journalists need to be and they need to disseminate this information in a more direct way to everyday consumers. So they really understand, like, what's impacting my utility bill and what can I do to make sure that it's not increasing? Like, right now, across the country, there are utilities who are requesting rate increases from their public service commissioners. That information needs to be disseminated to everyday people, and people need to feel like they have a voice in the process. They should use this voice. They should file a testimony in these rate mm-hmm. cases, and they should be more engaged. If we're not engaged as a society, then utilities will continue to do whatever they want, and that will impact us in a negative way. Sailor Goodson-Bell, final thoughts? Yeah, you know, that, was, that was well said. I, I don't have much to add, and I just want to echo that last point that Shelby was talking about of basically opening up the Pandora's boxes what the Public Service Commission is doing and the hearings that they have. Like These are public hearings that folks they don't have access to or like Shelly was saying, they might be talking about topics that feel out of touch, that feel wonky, but no, they're topics that affect people on a daily basis. And I think journalists can do a better job of trying to break those topics down and know that those are spaces where folks need to be. And so trying to uplift folks in those spaces, but then again, also translating a lot of the admittedly wonky topics that we're talking about in a way that um, everyday people can understand and feel pressure to get engaged on so that they can actually hold these utilities accountable and, again, hold their regulators accountable. Well, I'd like to thank you both very much. We've been speaking with Shelby Green, Research Fellow at the Energy and Policy Institute, and Sayla Goodson-Bell, Energy Justice Campaigner at the Center for Biological Diversity. Thank you both so very much for joining us this week on Counterspin. Yeah, thank thank you. you for having us again. And that's it for Counterspin for this week. Counterspin is produced by FAIR, the National Media Watch Group, based in New York. If you missed part of today's show or you'd like to hear previous shows, you can find them and transcripts on our site, FAIR.org. The show is engineered by Alex Noyes. I'm Janine Jackson. Thanks for listening to Counterspin. Counterspin.